Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. Good morning. It is a good day to be here. It's good to see everybody. Question I have for you as I get started today. Where were you in 1997? In fact, those of you who are streaming, watching with us online this morning, I'd invite you to make a comment there on the video clip. Tell us, what were you busy doing in 1997? Can you remember what was going on in your life then? This is the year that Bill Clinton began his second term in office as president. This is the year that Steve Jobs returned back to Apple, which was a very troubled company at the time, and they brought him back to kind of revive them, and we know how that ended up. If you were going to see anything in theaters that year, it was probably either Titanic or Men in Black. Titanic went on to win 11 Oscars. I don't know if this is significant or not, but I find it interesting. This is also the year that Nelson Mandela met the Spice Girls. He described the encounter as one of the greatest moments of his life. This is the guy who was, you know, big and ending apartheid in South Africa, but meeting the Spice Girls, wow. It was the year that several significant celebrities passed away. You may remember Jimmy Stewart or John Denver, the notorious B.I.G., Chris Farley. We lost all of them that year. Most notably, it's also the year that Princess Diana was killed in that car crash in Paris, France, in that speeding motorcade. Perhaps slightly less tragic, the rest of us had to spend all the rest of the year listening to Elton John sing Candle in the Wind, which was the only song they would play at that point on the radio. At the time, minimum wage in 1997 was $5.15 an hour. I can remember bagging groceries at the grocery store, thinking to myself, if I want to buy a CD, I must give them in exchange for that CD four hours of my life. That's how I thought about it. Not too much to make. Now, I'd also mention, on a personal note, in 1997, I turned 17 years old. Can you imagine telling that guy, 24 years from now, he'd be preaching at a church in Corpus Christi, Texas? And if you had met me, would you have thought that would be the case? (laughs) Yeah, right. Why not? Who knows? So we're doing a study of the life of Abraham. I've called it late bloomer. Abraham didn't get much going in his life until he was 75 years old. And though we've been with him for just a few weeks in this study, understand that 24 years is a pretty long time. And it has been 24 years since that first encounter with God where God told him to leave his family and the place where he was living, leave everything behind, to go to this land that God was going to show him, and God was going to bless him and bless all the nations of the world through him. That's, that was a big deal, but it was 24 years ago, and we're still waiting on that child of promise. He was 75 then. He's 99 years old now, so he's been a fairly old dude for a pretty long time. 99 years old. In fact, even Ishmael, Ishmael, his son, by uh, Sarah's 
handmaiden Hagar. Ishmael is now probably about a 13-year-old, almost a man himself. We've been sitting on this promise for a very, very long time, and it's now 24 years later, once again, once again, God decides to show up and start talking about his promises. There are two episodes I wanted to look at with you this morning, and they happen back to back. One seems to be intended more for Abraham. The second involves Abraham, but seems to be a bit more for Sarah. But both of these episodes involve God being present. Both involve Abram's family. Both involve promises. And interestingly, both involve some chuckling and laughter. There's something going on here that seems very funny. I'm going to read through several of these texts as we go, but Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1 says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. For not the only time in this text, it says, Abram fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. After this, God goes on to establish this covenant of circumcision with Abraham. All males in his family were to be circumcised as a symbol and a reminder of this covenant. It wasn't an unheard of tradition in the ancient world to be circumcised, but God applies to it his own significance and meaning. And specifically for Abraham, we're thinking about all his future descendants. And so there is a permanent reminder, even on his physical body, that all his future, his descendants, belong to the Lord. And that's to be a reminder among the Jewish people for all generations. Our children are children of promise. He then went on to bring up Sarai, and gave her that new name. Her name is now to be Sarah, which means princess. She will be a mother of nations, a mother of kings, God says. And at this point, once again, it says in verse 17, Abraham fell face down, but if you were standing nearby watching this, you would see him fall to his face, and then you start hearing the sound of chuckling. And I don't know if it was a deep belly laugh or what it was or if he cried a little bit as he laughed, but you've got to be kidding me. He starts thinking about the, the ridiculousness of the situation. He says, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abram said to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God said, yes, Ishmael will, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I'll establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. 
I will make him fruitful, greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers, and I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant, my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. So this isn't the first strange encounter that he's had with God, but this is a profound encounter. We see that from how many times Abraham keeps falling to the ground. This is powerful. This is emotional. And look at all the different emotions that pop up. There must have been some sense of joy. There's, there's some laughter, perhaps, at the ridiculousness of what it is that God is promising. There must have also been a source of pain. You know, God, I'm trusting you, and I am walking with you, and I am trying to be blameless, but my goodness, it's been 24 years now. You notice that he brings up Ishmael. It's almost like he's saying, God, I love you. Can, can we just stop doing this? I've got Ishmael. Can't you, just, can't you just work through him? You've been promising me this, you know, almost a quarter of a century now. Are you ever going to make good on it? And God finally says it's going to happen, and it's going to be within this next year. And just like Ishmael, Isaac, now the second child in Scripture to be named before he is born, God reaffirms Ishmael will also be blessed, but the promise will come through Sarah. It's going to take an act of God to make that happen. Her son will be Isaac, and it'll be next year. So reflecting on Abraham, again, Scripture holds him up as this profound model of faith. Is it the case that Abraham is really struggling with this? I think we have plenty of clues in the text that make us think Abraham really must have been struggling to say, God, you know, I do trust you, but this is getting pretty far-fetched. This is getting hard to believe. But nonetheless, something important is that even in the face of doubt, I think this is what faith looks like, even in the face of doubt, he remains obedient to God. We know that because it says the very same day, Abraham at 99 years old was circumcised, as was his son Ishmael, as were all the males in his household. So even as he expresses, God, I'm just struggling to trust you right now. I'm struggling to believe you. If you tell me to do something, even though I don't see where this is going, I'm going to still be faithful to you anyways. And I think that's what faith is. Sometimes faith feels easier when God is answering our prayers the way that we want him to and life seems to be moving onward and upward and things are getting better and things are increasing, but when things are going the opposite of what we had hoped for or prayed for or we can't make sense of what's going on, it's okay for your faith to be a time of struggle for you. It's okay to have seasons of doubt, but we must never let go of God himself even as Abraham is struggling, and I would say doubting, he still chooses to walk with God and hang on to that promise, even when it makes no sense to him. So there's a second encounter that happens right after this one, probably near the same time, because this encounter also mentions the length of time until Isaac was to get here. But this is where we find Abraham back at his tent at the hottest part of the day. He's near a large oak tree at Mamre. Suddenly, Abraham sees three men who are approaching. He sees these three men who are walking nearby. And something that we learn as we go is that these three men, in some mysterious way, are, are the presence of God himself. 
And so at least one of these is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And it's often the case in scripture, whenever you see someone show up called the angel of the Lord by that specific title, scripture goes on to refer to the angel of the Lord as if that angel is God himself. And so some people look at this text and will speculate, you know, is this the pre-incarnate Christ who is showing up to talk with Abraham? It's an interesting thought. We can't really prove or disprove it. But just the same, there is the presence of God himself along with two angelic companions. And so when Abram sees them coming nearby, you have to picture this 99-year-old man who just starts scurrying. He runs over to them, he bows down to them and says, please, please, he calls himself their servant. He says, come back over to my tent, come sit under this tree. He calls for one of his servants to get some water so they can wash their feet. He runs over to Sarah and says, start making them some bread in the kitchen. Let's get something going so they can have some refreshment. He goes and picks out one of the very best of his calves and gets a servant to start prepping it. Now, something that would be lost on us, we're pretty accustomed to eating meat about every day, but in the ancient world, you didn't do that. You know, if you were to butcher an animal, um, they had some ways of preserving things, but for the most part, if you were going to kill an animal and cook it, you needed to eat pretty much all of it right then. So that's a lot of meat to come out of a calf, but just the same, he had a prized calf. So this is, this is not just your average dinner. He is making them a banquet fit for a holiday. And so he has the servant start cooking it. And if any of y'all have worked with cooking meats and smoking large amounts of meat, that's not a 15, 20-minute process. He had to butcher the animal, then prep the animal, then cook the animal. And it says they hurried, but, I mean, this is an incredible act of hospitality he's showing to these people he's never met before. It's probably a good insight into what would it be like if you could ever meet Abraham. He's a hospitable guy. He's a kind person. But at 99 years old, he goes scurrying to welcome them and to get all their needs met, to make them comfortable. And it says that as the men were eating, Abram didn't just take his seat at the table. He stayed off to the side waiting as if he were their servant. Whatever you need next, I'll run and grab it. This 99-year-old man serving these men. But meanwhile, as he's standing nearby, this is when we begin to understand this wasn't just an encounter with a few strangers. There's something deeper going on here. In Genesis 18 and verse 9, they ask him, where's your wife, Sarah? Well, they're in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, listen to her description of herself, after I am worn out, you know, I'm not a spring chicken, I, I, am, I am, you know, I'm not like the grape, I'm like the raisin at this point, you know, I am old and worn out, my Lord Abram is old, will I now have this pleasure? It moved her to laugh, he's like... The ridiculousness of this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. 
This is another one of those passages where I'm wondering, is it like God is making this pronouncement and he's bold and serious and Sarah laughs and he's saying, why did you laugh? Or is it like, oh, Sarah, I hear you chuckling. You know, I don't know. I don't know what the tone of this conversation was, but she laughs. She's trying to be polite to the guests, but they know better. I know you're struggling to believe me right now, but when I see you next year, you're going to know that I was telling you the truth. And so these three men, as we're going to see next week in a pretty uncomfortable encounter, this wasn't the only purpose for which they were physically present in this world, but they have that important talk with Abraham. Sarah is very much included now in this conversation. A year from now, you're going to have a son, and appropriately, his name, Isaac, means laughter. Both Abraham and Sarah, at this final announcement, within a year, he's going to be here. They couldn't help but laugh about it. Their laughter is memorialized in his name. In this text, I think anytime God asks a question, you have to ponder the question that God asks. But God and his representatives asked a significant question here that we all have to wrestle with. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, I know if I ask that in Sunday school, you're going to say no because that's what you're supposed to say. But when it comes time in your life to trust God, when it goes against what feels like common sense or life experience or your greatest hopes, it's a really difficult thing to hang on to that as a truth that God says of himself, is anything too hard for the Lord. And the truth thing is, if you, if you would respond and say, yes, I think some things are too hard for God, it can only mean that you don't know God well enough yet. Amen. But that's the important question of the hour. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I find good news in this passage in the understanding that, you know, God's ability to shape our future doesn't depend on my readiness to accept it. That isn't it great to know that even before I have a clue what it is that God is trying to do for me, God will already be about doing those things long before I am smart enough or emotionally prepared enough or whatever it is to be ready to accept the work of God in my life. Already, God is doing all these things and we don't, he doesn't have to wait for us to catch up. This promise from God certainly reaches out farther than Abraham or Sarah's ability to accept it and receive it. He is stretching them. Think about the promises of God for you. Surely there are some that we all struggle with, because after all, if we really trusted the promises of God, would you ever have a moment's anxiety about your job, or your source of income, or the results you're waiting on from those tests, or the accomplishments you feel you need to have in your life? Do we not all struggle to believe that all things are possible with God? Jesus talked about this a lot. Matthew chapter 6, you remember where Jesus will say, just don't worry. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. God's going to provide those things. By all your worrying, can you add a single hour to your life? You can worry all you want. You can lose all the sleep you want. But in the end, when it's your time to go, is there anything you can do about it? No, Jesus says, don't worry about these things. If God takes care of all the plants and the shrubs and the flowers and he takes care of the birds and the animals and they're all 
sustained and provided for, and you're so much more important to him than they are. Surely you know that God's going to take care of you. And we might be tempted to respond to Jesus, yeah, that sounds great, but when the bills have to get paid and a solution has to come from somewhere, how do I know you won't let me down? We all struggle with that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jesus spoke about this on a different occasion when a young man approached him. And this is an affluent, successful young man, undoubtedly with a great reputation among his community. And the young man's question was, you know, teacher, master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And the guy says, oh, yeah, 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 I know the commandments. I've done all that since I was a kid. You know, this is a guy who hasn't made what the world would think are a lot of bad choices. He's made a lot of good choices. He's kept his ducks in a row. He's a rule follower, but Jesus knows he's also very affluent. And so Jesus says, well, it's great that you kept all the commandments, so now all you've got to do is sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And in saying that, Jesus knew he was getting right to the core of the issue. That here's a guy that wanted to trust God, but in the end was still banking on his finances, his coverages, all the things that he could provide for himself. So when Jesus said, I want you to let go of all your other sources of security and just step out on faith in God alone, let go of all that material stuff, it says his face was downcast and he went away sad because he felt like he had a lot to lose in doing something like that. That's a hard encounter. And Jesus has a conversation with his disciples, and especially Peter, following that encounter. And in this weird way, I think what Jesus says here is a marvelous commentary on Abraham's life in relation to those promises. It says in Mark chapter 10, in verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I have to say, even as an American who can point to other Americans who have more than I have, there's not a one of us in this room who's not in that category. We are phenomenally blessed as a nation, as a people, as a city, as individual households. We are phenomenally blessed. But Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. I wonder why that was. I think part of it may have been that their assumption in the ancient world, you know, like in the book of Job, when the bad stuff starts happening to Job, or like that man who was, who was born blind, they just kind of assume, well, if bad stuff's happening to you, you must be a bad person, and if good stuff's happening to you, you're probably a good person. So they would probably look at a guy like the rich young ruler and say, well, look how rich he is. He must be good. And Jesus says, the two are not always connected. It might just be that some of the most admirable examples of faith have nothing hardly at all materially in this world, and then some of the people with the greatest struggles are those who might look really good from the outside. But they were amazed at what he said. Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? If the affluent people are intrinsically the good people, as they might have understood it, what hope do any of us have? Jesus looked at them and said, see if this sounds familiar, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. 
He means that as an encouraging thought. On your own, you're just not going to get it right. On your own, you're going to have too hard of a time letting go of the things of this world. But when God's involved, suddenly, nothing is impossible. Peter spoke up and said, we've left everything to follow you. So no, no humility here on Peter's part. Don't forget us. You know, we're traveling around here without a place to sleep unless someone provides one for us. We left everything. I had a business back in Galilee. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this is a profound passage, and this is, I view as a promise of God, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That was a key question in Abraham's life. Jesus brings it up as a key question he wanted to teach about, and I think it's still a key question for our lives. Do I actually believe God and follow through with my actions, trusting God even when my heart and my mind are struggling? Now here Jesus speaks to Peter in the present tense. No one, and I think it applies to us, any, any of us who give up anything for the sake of the kingdom, even if it's a small thing or if it's a massive thing, what you're going to discover in your life is that no matter how much you try and give back to God, you cannot outgive God. You do everything you can to outdo God in his generosity toward you, and you're just going to discover that God will pay it back to you many times over in ways perhaps more wonderful even than what you were imagining or conceiving of. Think about Abraham's own life as it pertains to these comments. So we can talk about how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, but need I remind us that by the time we had those episodes with Sarah and Egypt and all the ways that his stuff has multiplied, when we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about one of the wealthiest men alive at the time of his life. He was a rich man. You think about God's promises to him, and you think about all the things that Abraham gave up, that he left behind all that was familiar to him. He left a familiar place. He went to some place where he had no idea where God was leading him. He left everything behind and then we see all that God did for him in response to that. Because Abraham trusted God and stepped out on faith, God made him these incredible promises and fulfilled these promises. And it was true that sometimes the first became last, but also the last became first. Abraham was maybe the last of us to have a child, but look at what God did in blessing him and all his descendants through that child. I think Jesus could have even said, if he were to bring up the story of Abraham, all that Abraham gave up and all that God gave back to him, he could rightly say, even now, those of us standing here talking, we're all descendants of Father Abraham. Even we here gathered today in faith are descendants of Father Abraham, this great example of faith who made our salvation possible through the promises of God which took place in his life. So in understanding the extent of God's dedication to keeping his promises, we've seen some amazing things happen with Abraham. But it wasn't until the time of Jesus that we can really appreciate the fullness 
and the depths to which God was dedicated to these promises. There's that persistent question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then we get to Mark chapter 14, and it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. His hour was upon him. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Everything is possible for you. There's nothing impossible with God. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Father, everything is possible for you, but is there some other way? But for the good God intended to do for us, there was no other way. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Not even the sacrifice of his own child. Not even then will God relent from what he wants to accomplish in our lives. So Jesus says, not what I will, Lord, but what you will. Nothing is impossible for God. And God held himself accountable to his promises even beyond a point that was imaginable for us. He stayed true to the promise from thousands of years before that all nations would be blessed through this descendant of Abraham that we now know as our Lord and Savior. What an amazing thing. What great faithfulness. When again, who of us could possibly hold God accountable for anything? You know, a few years from now, we all turn back to dust, but God remembers us and he remembers everything he said he'll do for us. Salvation is such an amazing gift. We must always honor it and be grateful and live in a way that's grateful and trusting because of what God has already done. As you reflect on your life this morning, Maybe the salvation is something that you've been kind of skirting around where you think it sounds neat, but wonder if God could really do something for you. I think Abraham would stand here beside me and say boldly and openly, nothing is impossible for God. You're not without hope. You're not beyond the point of helping. You're not beyond the point that God could still do something incredible. Trust God. Give him that opportunity. Test him and see what he does. If you need to respond to us this morning by coming forward, or we also have a QR code, you can scan and just write us a little message on our website. It's also on your uh, bulletins if you use uh, the, the camera on your phone. Somehow, however you need to communicate with us, I'll be up front. We'll have some elders scattered throughout the room. So whether you want to bring something before the church for prayer or you just need a quiet moment with a, a person who would listen to you this morning. Whatever we can do to help you, we would love to do that. We invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing.